You're listening to the Gov Future podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we talk to Andre Mendez, Chief Information Officer at U.S. Department of Commerce. Andre shares insights into data sharing and collaboration among government agencies and the DOC's approach. He also provides examples of successful strategies in leveraging data for use with emerging technologies, approach to AI, automation, advanced analytics, big data, cybersecurity, and other significant IT initiatives. Stay tuned. And welcome to the Gov Future podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walsh. And I'm your host, Ron Schmelzer. And as mentioned, you know, for those of you who've been listening to Gov Future podcast, we're now going on, I don't know, 50 some odd episodes, just fantastic, as we've been cranking through some fantastic interviews with uh, public sector thought leaders who are pushing and advancing innovative technology across so many different areas. And on our interviews, if you haven't been listening to Gov Future, you'll know that we've been interviewing folks in the federal sector, civilian and defense in the state, and even local governments and some international governments to see how they are using and driving innovation in the public sector uh, across many different areas uh, and basically advancing innovation for those who are really trying to meet the mission and their needs for our listeners and, of course, our Gov Future members. Exactly. And if you have, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, then welcome and please subscribe so that you can get notified of all of our upcoming episodes. At Gov Future, we really are focused on bringing the entire public sector ecosystem together at all levels of government. So for today's podcast, we're so excited to have with us here today, Andre Mendez, who is the Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Welcome, Andre, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm sure it's going to be great. Yeah, we're looking forward to this discussion. We also um, had the privilege of having Andre at one of our Gov Future Forum DC events. And so I'll link to that in the show notes so you can hear all of the good discussion we had there. But I'm excited for today's conversation. So we'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role now at Department of Commerce. Sure. Uh, so uh, as you mentioned, Andre Mendez, I'm the CIO for the Department of Commerce. I have been at Commerce uh, as a CIO for uh, about four years, a little over four years. <clears throat> Started as acting, and then six months later, or eight months later, I was made uh, permanent um, at, at, uh, at the Department of Commerce. Um, as uh, in that position, I have responsibility not only for the, the systems at the Department of Commerce proper, uh, but also the 13 bureaus that comp- comprise it. So organizations as well known as NOAA, NIST, Census, and the U.S. Patent and Trade Office, and other smaller organizations that are also crucial uh, for uh, the operation of the of the federal government and for the mission of increasing commerce and economic activity across the land. <clears throat> now, pr- prior to this, I was um, the uh, I was with the uh, BBG, the Broadcasting Board of Governors, has been renamed to USA GM. US, United States Agency for Global Media, and I was with there for a little over nine years. And during that period, um, I was uh, the CIO and CTO, but also during substantial amount, I was the CEO and COO of the organization, uh, so running the entire agency. And before that, I was in the private sector and at PBS for a long time. 
I think that's fantastic. And you know, one of the biggest things that you know we love to hear about, you know, especially all these these government agencies that I think for many of our listeners may not be familiar with the breadth of all the things that many of our government agencies do, especially the stuff you're talking about, you know, the you know, the at commerce, which includes patent trademark office and standards NIST and census and so many other things that are just connected to everything we do. Many of these things written right into the constitution of the US and many of the things that support a lot of our economic drivers, the things that we may even take for granted every day, the fact that we have standards that control all sorts of stuff. I remember seeing a really interesting document, uh, documentary about this huge weight you know, that's uh, at NIST that basically helps guarantee the standards which we depend on every day. And all of these things are just so amazing. And I think people don't realize sort of the role of technology in all this, You know, not only facilitating the missions of every one of these organizations, but supporting the agencies and all the things that we are doing. And, you know, one of those things, of course, is the core of everything we're doing now in this digital age, as we move towards digital transformation, is data. And data is core to every single thing that we do. So let's talk a little bit about that, because data is so critical around sharing and collaboration among and inside government agencies. So, and of course, you've been involved in this for a long time, as you just shared. So maybe you could tell us about some of the initiatives and best practices that that you're observing and, and recommending that can foster better data and information sharing, and of course, in the context of security, which is such a, a core idea as well. Well, I mean, effectively, um, data is everything. Okay, to put it to put it bluntly, everything that we do, everything that we say, um, e- even the way we operate as human beings is driven by data, right? We uh, we are we ourselves as humans are are are, are little more than a bunch of uh, feedback cycles that allow us to function uh, with data from our internals, with blood pressure and everything else, and all of the uh, all of the bio bio uh, data. And, uh, you know, in, 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 in true life, right, uh, outside of the human body, the same is true. Uh, if you look at the objectives uh, of NOAA, um, for example, the objective is to provide people with the most accurate data possible about, for example, the path of hurricanes and, um, and, uh, tornadoes, right? As they potentially put endangered life and, um, and limb and, uh, property across the United States or, you know, eventually across the world. Now, you look at the U.S. Patent and Trade Office, and it is all about keeping data about intellectual property and uh, how it uh, it is it can be apportioned to individuals or corporations, and therefore becomes one of the biggest engines for economic growth uh, with inventions and then their nurturing and eventually their commercialization, right? And so data for any organization uh, nowadays is everything. And as such, it needs to be treated as everything. Now, you mentioned cybersecurity. When when we see data and technology becoming ever more important in the realm of uh, of the human condition, right? Cybersecurity then becomes absolutely paramount, because whereas uh, in the in the past uh, you might be concerned, for example, about something like uh, you know money in your bank uh, that somebody might be tried to extract information in order to get, okay. Uh, that's obviously something you don't want to happen, right? But the impact is, let's say, limited, right? Uh, you know, it, it serves some economic loss, and and on you go. But the moment that uh, information technology systems start doing weather forecasting, the moment that they start controlling train movement, the moment that they start controlling uh, aviation uh, with GPS and everything else, then those become, you know, far more important on a macro scale 
including the fact that with digital currencies, for example, you could have not an impact to an individual or to an organization, but with the impact to an entire country, the impact to an entire culture. When you look at the uh, role of data in uh, in bioinformatics and medicine, right, you could literally be looking with a cybersecurity breach uh, at, uh, you know, the putting in danger of people's lives. When uh, ransomware takes hold of an hospital's data and the hospital has to go from uh, operating with automatic systems, with automatic notifications, uh, with alarms that are driven, uh, by biomedical information, and all of a sudden, all of that needs to regress back to manual, it puts an enormous burden on the staff, right, and puts patients at risk. So from a data standpoint, cybersecurity becomes a crucial part of the functioning of, of modern society, and, and that's extremely important, right? Now, the data itself, you know, one thing that that, that it is often sort of uh, ignored or, or taken for granted is the fact that metadata is just as important as data, right? Because data needs to be quantified. Data needs to be qualified. Data needs to be organized. And in order to do so, the metadata has got to be precise, right? Every interface that you, we see between computer systems requires uh, extremely precise metadata about fields and their, and their, and their significance, right? Uh, and in the absence of that, total chaos reigns. And then the next issue is data quality, right? Effectively, data quality, if a sensor is wrong and you're making decisions based on a sensor, all of a sudden uh, you have, um, you know, you have a potentially serious situation where you make decisions, for example, on treatment or on warning systems for civilians about the path of a tornado that is driven by a sensor that is misfiring. So what does that bring to the table? It brings the, the, the necessity for data to also be normalized, be uh, you know available in terms of its past history, so that any large discrepancy from the past is immediately not notified, noticed, and acted upon. And what what is best at doing that? Artificial intelligence, right? Because it is able to do recognition pattern recognition uh, through machine learning, and then realize that there is a let's say a disturbance in the force, right? So that 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 says okay, danger is afoot. Uh, because there's something here that's totally out of whack. And at that point, you can dig in and find out if that is a sensor malfunction, right? A, an error, a false positive, or is effectively a situation that has arisen that must be acted upon because it is uh, a not a false positive. The same is true on the other side of the equation, where you might have a lot of sensors that are going off and several sensors that are not, in which case you might be dealing with a false negative. Right. And when you're dealing with a false negative, then you might be missing a very important event that has potentially disastrous consequences. Right. And so all of these things come together uh, in order to facilitate the working of systems that are enormously complex, enormously interconnected. Right. But that at the end of the day, rely on the reliability of each one of the data points that is acquired so they can be acted upon. And as a result of the metadata that defines it, within the parameters that are acceptable versus non-acceptable. So it is an entire ecosystem that, again, you know, my background is genetics and biology. I always go back uh, to homeostatic systems like, like ourselves, where, you know, our systems are constantly controlling what they do or don't do based on the necessities of the human being. If you're going up a flight of steps two at a time, uh, you know, your system is going to start acting differently, right? It's going to go from a anaerobic system 
where it's using energies already stored in your bloodstream um, and, uh, you know, for energy into, uh, you know, an aerobic process where it needs to start burning, uh, you know, uh, stuff from the rest of your system, from your muscles and everything else uh, and in order to, to perform. So I think it's fascinating, fascinating uh, sort of interplay between data and, and our world, both inter internally and externally. Yeah, that was a very, you know, thoughtful response. And you had so many nuggets in there that I could just dig into with that. Uh, but one thing that we do like to talk about, you know, data, you're right, data is really what's driving everything. And the government definitely has a lot of data. So can you share examples of successful strategies in leveraging data for use with different emerging technologies? And what were some of the key takeaways from those experiences? Sure. Um, so there, there, there's an enormous amount. Uh, let's say, for example, uh, with um, NOAA acquisition of data on on schools of fish with the fisheries, right? There's a, there's constant acquisition of uh, school fish schools uh, movement, right? And uh, and nowadays, even using AI, the counting of uh, of the number of fish and the species that are represented, right? You know, you know, and so in order to do that, you have to have the sensors, you have to have the algorithm to really look at it uh, and decide uh, what needs to be done um, with uh, with that data and any measures that need to be taken, so that then you can be proactive about sustainability uh, and also about providing information to fishermen uh, or fisherwomen <laughs> um, about uh, where uh, you know where they can find the best catch in, in a sustainable manner. So that you don't deplete the environment. So that is absolutely essential. Uh, you look at the, the data that is compiled by BEA, right? The Bureau of Economic Analysis. Um, and effectively every quarter, um, the BEA produces the GDP estimates and previous corrections to the previous GDP. How important is that? Well, let me tell you, <clears throat> that data needs to be published literally within a second or so of when it's due. Why? Because there's an enormous amount of economic activity that takes place behind it based on interfaces that act on milliseconds and based on the data so that it goes through an analysis of all of the data points and immediately starts making, for example, trading decisions in terms of stocks or bonds or whatever the economic engine might be. And so at every step of everything that we do, uh, you know, there's an enormous amount of usage of data that's produced by the Department of Commerce and its bureaus, right? That has massive impact on the wealth uh, and uh, and well-being uh, of the United States, uh, you know, economic environment. Uh, the same is true, for example, with data from ITA on, uh, on uh, the pricing of certain commodities that are being imported into the country in order to make sure that there is no uh, dumping uh, going on and price uh, and, or price gouging going on based on conditions, right? And so uh, extremely important to have the sensors in there, to have them uh, alarm and then, you know, deal with the, all of the implications of that, whether they are investigations of trading practices, whether they are actually, you know, potentially uh, raiding a warehouse uh, for the, uh, the acquisition of evidence of product that has been dumped at um, at prices that are not fair uh, to the American consumer. So it, it's ever-present. It's absolutely ever-present. Yeah, that's really very insightful. In part, you were talking about how some of these economic systems are keyed to 
instant access to that data and the people who get access to that data the the quickest you know get that advantage and that may or may not be a good thing and i think that it sort of relates to our next question which is sort of people taking advantage of the data situation either people protecting it or not protecting that data taking advantage of what should be private information or taking or trying to cause harms in other ways. Of course, we're talking about cybersecurity here and the risks that uh, as we, you know, there's this balance we have where we, on the one hand, we want to make more use of data because that gives us all this extra power. But on the other hand, we want to protect that data and restrict its use in some ways because that exposes it to all these threats. So, you know, especially for government agents like yourself and the and the, just the vast portfolios of systems you're dealing with, you know, what are some of these challenges that you're dealing with and some of the approaches you're taking uh, not just protecting systems, but of course, protecting this shared data that we're starting to make a lot more use of. Sure. So um, obviously, uh, you know, one of the uh, sort of the, the latest and greatest innovations and iterations from a cybersecurity standpoint uh, is the the avid pursuit of a zero trust architect, right? Um, and because uh, we have come to the realization uh, through very painful experiences that the concept that at once was uh, thought to be uh, an outstanding way to operate, namely VPNs, right? Um, because it was virtual and private uh, network, uh, gave you the degree of protection that you needed, regardless of the sensitivity of the systems. And of course, we became aware, again, through painful experiences, um, that that was not the case, because an infiltration effectively means uh, that a trusted environment uh, is now compromised by a bad actor that nevertheless has the credentials to be in and can appear as to be totally innocuous, right? So the, uh, you know, the, uh, as the Trojans proved uh, way back uh, with uh, the Trojan horse, right? Uh, that is not necessarily a good solution. So we needed to move into an environment where, you know, you trust nobody and anything. Uh, and so when the Department of Commerce was faced with that decision, uh, to, uh, a mandate effectively, from Congress uh, to move to a zero trust architecture. We had to make a very, what I consider to be a very seminal decision, which was how we're gonna do this. Are we going to take out, uh, you know, a little bit over a hundred million dollars that Congress gave us and distribute it by the, um, by the bureaus uh, on a pro rata basis, let's say by, by size of the bureau, by number of endpoints, by number of systems, and let them do their own thing and implement zero trust architectures which means that at the end of the day, we would have 13 different zero trust architectures and in all likelihood, some better than others, uh, which meant that your lowest common denominator now becomes the entry point potentially with more danger, right? And therefore potentially precludes data interchanges and interfaces between systems because nobody wants to trust the lowest common denominator. And we decided instead to, uh, to actually do that administration uh, and evaluation of systems and purchasing at the Department of Commerce proper, and then use it throughout the entire set of, uh, of bureaus. And so we created a task force uh, that was composed by the best cybersecurity people from the Department of Commerce to create one zero trust architecture for the entire department. And we have been implementing since about March of this year when we first got that funding. Uh, I think that that was a seminal moment where we have been able to prove, despite the fact that people did not believe that that was the right way to go, uh, that the economies of scale, the ability to learn uh, from implementations, to make subsequent implementations faster uh, and more effective and, and safer as a result, uh, has proven to be outstanding. 
So we've selected an EDR package and have been implementing it throughout the entire environment. Then we selected an ICANN package because without identity and access uh, management, uh, you know, you're pretty much in the dark most of the time, right? Um, and finally, we selected a SASE package that allows us to take control of our network at the edges uh, and really, uh, you know, put forth a, a set of standard protocols, processes, and procedures that will guarantee that we are in a better cybersecurity posture. So for us, that was a seminal point, a seminal point. We're now seeing some other departments starting to adopt that whole of department uh, strategy for, uh, for cybersecurity. And I think at the end of the day, commerce uh, will have driven a change in philosophy uh, in terms of those implementations as whole of um, that uh, will be extremely beneficial, both from a cybersecurity standpoint and also from a financial standpoint. Yeah, that's great to hear because it is so important. And I think that uh, this is, you know, an ongoing discussion, right? And it's a journey. So. I know that when you are looking to adopt emerging technologies, there's many benefits to it, but there's also some challenges as well. So can you share with us some of the challenges that public sector agencies face and maybe specifically Department of Commerce face around adopting these emerging technologies and these ideas, you know, such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, zero trust? Sure. Um, so one of the issues that we're dealing with today with the uh, absolute explosion upon the marketplace and consciousness of generative AI is how do we leverage it uh, in a relatively controlled environment so that uh, we prevent, uh, you know, mostly two things from happening. One, for the um, uh, non-discriminate uh, deployment of data from the U.S. Uh, Department of Commerce that is either not ready to be released, uh, that is draft data or has not been corrected uh, and might be or preliminary and might be out there now being used by engines. So making sure that there's no exfiltration of data into the generative AI engines uh, that therefore becomes their property and that can be used in such a way as it would create embarrassment for the Department of Commerce because it's not data that is deemed to be finished yet um, or, or vetted. And so that's a very, very serious issue. The other issue is on the way in of data, where an employee, you know, with, uh, you know, the best of intentions uh, in the production of documents, in the production of memoranda, in the production of reports, in the production of uh, public notices, uh, uses a generative AI engine um, with data that is unknown of origin, or that might even be tendentious or even biased on purpose, or even maliciously uh, skewed. Uh, and so that creates also a problem because we want to make sure that in our environment, when we're doing analysis, when we're doing dissemination, where we're doing communications, that we're not relying on data sources or an engine that it either sort of by accident or on purpose compromised in terms of uh, of the data that it produces. So those are our challenges that are very real, right? Because people are obviously, uh, you know, very eager and intent on using the technology to do their jobs better, to do their jobs easier, in an easier fashion, right? And so they might be tempted uh, to work in sort of a, an unstructured way. Uh, and that's a situation where that proactivity might lead to uh, to some degree of embarrassment or or dissemination of wrong data. That's a, that's a serious problem that we need to make sure that we have a hold of and that doesn't come to the table. Yeah. And I think you might have even sort of gone into some of the things I was going to ask you about, which is sort of like some of the unique and interesting ways 
in which you see these technologies, especially generative AI and AI and large language models in general. They know that we've had conversations with actually some of the various agencies that uh, make up Department of Commerce. I know that U.S. Patent Trademark Office has their own particular perspectives and opinions on a generative AI in particular and stances around what is copyrightable, what is patentable, and even the use of AI by their own patent examiners and by their own folks. They're very strict laws, and, and well, not laws, but strict uh, guidelines as to how to do that. Um, and we've had similar conversations with the folks from the uh, ITA and from other groups about how they're using it. But maybe have you sort of put any sort of department wide or maybe seen some interesting, uh, unique applications that you might want to see more of or ways in which uh, the technology is helping in some particular way? So as it's often the case, uh, Jamie Holcomb at USPTO, uh, you know, uh, leads the field, right? He is a leader by nature. Absolutely. and so. Uh, when all of this uh, hullabaloo about uh, generative AI started, uh, you know, to, to, to filter, he immediately suggested to his management that they should be at least, you know, I think he said, great, but not now, uh, and then put some guide, guidelines and guardrails around it. It was a brilliant move, right? Uh, and uh, the Department of Commerce followed shortly um, with some directives in terms of what could and could not be done, uh, and uh, also created a, a process that has run through my office uh, in order to vet uh, potential uses of AI within the Department of Commerce. Now, we uh, struggled for about a week, uh, two weeks or so, on how to best uh, you know, incorporate that into our processes that were already existing without either creating bottlenecks that would prevent people from using it in, in a timely manner, if so needed, um, but also in making sure that there are processes and procedures to have a gateway keeping uh, function that allows us to do so in a rational manner. And so we decided to use the technology insertion process on our um, enterprise architecture environment, right? Uh, and uh, so every time that there is a project that, uh, that would like to leverage generative AI, they submit a proposal. We go through it as fast as possible, <clears throat> right? And then either grant them authorization, uh, grant them provi uh, provisional authorization with some uh, specific guardrails that need to be in place, or deny them uh, the, uh, the ability to do that. By and large, the bureaus have been very thoughtful in their submissions, and I don't think that we have denied any yet, right? But at the, at the very least, we have control over the flow of these uh, environments until the situation is better studied and, and, and more controllable. I will tell you that quite honestly, I am a believer that somewhere along the line, much like what you see in, in FedRAMP, right, there's going to have to be a process where uh, both uh, engines and LLMs become sort of uh, approved by the federal government at large uh, to be okay for usage, right? And at the same time, that the federal government also creates a list of uh, known bad actors uh, that that become uh, you know um, uh, identified uh, and classified so that uh, that the uh, the um, the agencies and departments can avail themselves of that list to decide whether to use a particular company's uh, you know products uh, a particular engine or a particular LLM. This process is going to be nascent, right? Just like FedRAMP was. FedRAMP is still evolving every day, uh, and in all likelihood will lend itself to the same type of classification with low, moderate, and high, uh, depending on the sensitivity of the system that is propo proposing to leverage uh, these external 
capabilities for its own functioning. Um, but I think that if we do this at agency level, right, it's an enormous duplication of effort. Um, and uh, again, establishes a low common, a, a, the lowest common denominator as potentially being much lower than one would want it to be for mission critical work. If it's done at uh, the whole of government level, there is not necessarily an assurance of perfection, but an assurance of a process and, and proceed and set of procedures, um, and, uh, and guidelines that will ensure that that lowest common is still much higher than it would otherwise be in a wild environment where everybody does their own thing. <clears throat> yeah, I think this is going to continue to evolve, like you said, over time, continue to uh, be looked at and guidance will evolve as these technologies do. So we like to wrap up our podcast by asking everybody the same question because you're able to bring your unique experiences into this answer. What do you see or hope to see as the future of technology and innovation in the government? Hmm. Okay, so for me, that is all about service to the citizen. So I have been advocating for the creation of a multi-tiered set of portals and functionalities that rather than being driven by a specific organization at the county level, at the state level, at the federal level, is driven by the individual right, to the citizen, right? It is a citizen portal where, let's say, for example, I live in Texas um, and I live in a county in Texas, right? I should be able to, in hopefully a near future, have an Andre Mendes portal that is entirely designed by me and that gives me immediate access to all of the services of government that I either need or use on a regular basis and that is entirely driven by my identity as a citizen and doesn't require me to go through, you know, enormous amount of complexity in order to deal with two disparate problems, such as, for example, getting a driver's license or paying my taxes or looking at my benefits from Social Security or looking at my Medicare account um, uh, and looking at my water bill from the municipality, right? If we can create an environment where there's this multi-tiered environment that focuses into one citizen portal, with one identity, um, then we might have a situation where it becomes a lot easier for government to provide services, a lot more efficient for government to provide services. It's going to require a lot of um, uh, of uh, standardization and a lot of collaboration, right? But we have been trying to standardize things. I mean, if you look at technology today, it is absolutely driven by the standardization and the, uh, the creation of abstraction layers across the entire technology stack, right? We're all using the same technology, right? If you look at the chipsets that are used by 98% of the people, you're going to find uh, the x86 uh, environment, right? Um, you know, you're going to see Windows and Linux and maybe a couple of other variations, right? Uh, and you're going to look at, um, you know, uh, and I hate to name name specific browsing companies. I'm not endorsing them in any way. But you look at Office 365 and, and Google uh, services, right? And... Uh, and so there are abstraction layers that are constantly created, right? Even inside organizations. When I took over as CIO of Special Olympics, everybody had an email uh, from from their own home, right? And people operated like that on a global basis. By the time I finished, we had the precursor of Office 365 servicing everybody. Look at that, an abstraction layer so that everybody contact every can contact everybody and everybody uh, has easy access uh, to to all of the information. 
these are the things that we need to do on a continual basis, right? Because uh, the the importance of technology is so overwhelming that going it at piecemeal is not going to be something that allows us to move forward at the speed that we need to move forward to. Because guess what? It's a dangerous world out there, and our competitors are doing exactly that, uh, and we can't afford to be left behind. That's that's great. Well, we love these these perspectives. The this final question gives us such unique answers from so many perspectives. We haven't heard that one yet. We haven't heard the perspective of this idea of everybody having personal ownership of their uh, information and their uh, experiences and trying to standardize, which makes a lot of sense because here we are talking to Department of Commerce. We got NIST, which is involved in standards. You even kind of mentioned chips. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we had an interview with the folks from chips as well, part of NIST. So <laughs> it gives you this unique perspective of the power and the uh, imp- importance of things like data and standards and and coordination and collaboration, which I think is a great little capstone for this whole interview. So I want to thank you so much, Andre, for being on the Gut Future podcast, sharing your unique and valuable insights with our audience. And we hope our audience stays engaged and reaches out and 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 gets and participates in all the things that uh, you mentioned uh, on this podcast that we will be sharing as well in our show notes. Fantastic. Well, it was a pleasure to speaking with you and uh, look forward to the next time. This was a wonderful podcast discussion and thank you so much. We've got some great resources if you're looking to get more insight and detail on a range of technology that we discussed in this podcast and other topics. Go to govfuture.com slash resources, which is tailored just for you, our GovFuture listeners, and also our GovFuture members. If you're not a member already and you'd like to take advantage of all that the community has to offer, I encourage you to go to govfuture.com slash join to become a member. You get access to a diverse network of government innovators, opportunities to collaborate with government agencies, exclusive access to events and resources, and a platform to have a voice in shaping the future of government innovation. Also, if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, make sure to subscribe and also rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. To view this episode's show notes, Find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators. Go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.